the legislator who introduced that amendment said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. Hey, what? What'd you say? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Tons of brown jackets. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Maybe I misunderstood and what I'm you were saying. How I'll get down the stairs. Yeah, I think so. Oh. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening pleasure or otherwise on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me... From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us as we continue to fight like hell as we have for nearly 20 years now to protect what is left of your democracy. And there may be less and less of it ahead in the uh, uh, days ahead. It was day two of oral arguments on Tuesday for the Supreme Court's newest justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who you heard her Talking about the hated Friedman? What was what what? What was she? She, she was, was talking what? about right after the Civil War yeah, and the, all of the amendments oh, to the Constitution that were intended to the, give equal rights and equal protection of the Constitution to the freed slaves, the freed, freed men. Oh well that's yes. thank you for Spelled clearing that up. Desi Doyen, I greatly appreciate mm-hmm. that. Nonetheless, KBJ, as she is becoming known. Well, she made as much of a splash during Tuesday's oral arguments uh, on a very disturbing right-wing challenge to the provisions barring racial discrimination in voting under the landmark Voting Rights Act, as she did the day before during oral arguments on a very disturbing challenge from the right wing to the e- to the uh, EPA's authority to regulate clean water. Under the Clean Water Act, we will jump into the details on that voting rights case and what it means for minority voters in Alabama, in Louisiana, and potentially every state in the union momentarily with redistricting expert Dan Vicuña of Common Cause. But first, I want to pick up where we sort of left off yesterday following the bombshell scoop 
from the Daily Beast's Roger Sullenberger on Monday, revealing that Georgia's Republican U.S. Senate candidate, former football hero and self-proclaimed devout Christian family man with four children from four different mothers and unapologetic anti-abortion absolutist Herschel Walker, who secretly, according to Sullenberger's uh, great reporting, uh, secretly urged a former girlfriend to get an abortion in 2009, which Walker then paid for and Sullenberger had the receipts as well as a signed get well card and a record of the deposited handwritten check to prove all of this. That, despite Walker's claims to being a years-long absolutist opponent of abortion, which he claims to oppose even in the case of rape, incest, and the life of the mother, saying his position has always been that as a devout Christian who likens abortion to murder. Well, Walker claimed uh, Monday night that Sullenberger's reporting was, quote, a flat out lie. He uh, declared his intent to sue the Daily Beast the very next morning, though no such suit has actually been filed now, days later. Walker, who has a long and documented, well-documented history of being a liar on all manner of, uh, of things, is nonetheless currently in a neck and neck race to unseat Georgia's Democratic U.S. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock in the uh, in the midterms in November. But Politico is reporting that months before the news broke, alleging Walker had paid for an abortion, top Republicans in the state, including those advising Walker's team, warned him that the story could torpedo his campaign if it came out. Four people with knowledge of those preliminary discussions, according to Politico, said that the abortion issue was well-known within the state, even before reporters began inquiring about it. It was brought to the attention of those working on Walker's behalf, in part as a means of discouraging him from running in the first place, but his team downplayed the uh, potential disruption that it would cause. Quote, it was like, eh, it's not going to come out. You're you're being hyperbolic. That, according to one top Georgia GOP operative who was granted anonymity to discuss these private conversations. Quote, the reaction was not they're going to say that because it never happened. It was everything else. Uh, people aren't going to find out. So they didn't care that it happened. They were concerned that it was going to come out, but they didn't think that it would and everything would be fine. Well, on Monday, people did find out. Nonetheless, Republican leadership, including former President Donald Trump, who had boosted Walker with an endorsement in the first place, they have reaffirmed their support for him. Nonetheless, Trump said in a statement, quote, Herschel has properly denied the charges against him, and I have no doubt he is correct. Of course, what the statements of support for Walker leave out is the admission that many people in top GOP circles, including those with ties to the Trump operation, were aware for months about the allegations existence. They just didn't care or they didn't think it would come out before the election. So they didn't care. 
Liz Mayer, a longtime Republican opposition researcher and consultant with corporate clients in Georgia, though she is not involved in Walker's campaign, said that she had heard the claim as far back as 2021. She said she recalled uh, hearing about this very early, this abortion thing I heard, having more kids than he was copping to, I heard, and all of this was before we got to the point of him being the Republican candidate. I heard about the alleged liabilities, and she says abortion was top of the list. But again, they didn't care. Another Republican strategist who was involved in the Georgia Senate race said there was talk this summer when stories emerged that Walker had fathered previously undisclosed children, in fact, three of them with three different mothers. Uh, there were claims over the summer that the claims of, of uh, a past abortion would soon follow. But rather than move to proactively address the story, Walker's team held their breath, hoping that the election would pass before it surfaced. One person close to the Walker campaign granted anonymity as well to discuss the deliberations, told Politico, quote, I think people were holding out hope that we have five weeks to go and it would never come out. The publication of the Daily Beast story has set off a massive, potentially disruptive, I'm sorry, destructive political ripple aimed at Walker's campaign, Politico reports. Georgia is considered a top prospect for Republicans to gain a Senate seat before ongoing concerns about Walker's past. Since running for Senate, it was revealed that Walker is father to three other children, in addition to his previously known son, Christian, who has over half a million followers on Instagram and frequently talks about subjects like abortion and absentee fathers for some reason. He, uh, as we uh, shared on the show on our uh, previous broadcast, he, he kind of flipped out after the Daily Beast's report in support of that report, and he railed against his father's lies and hypocrisy, uh, on uh, on a Twitter thread and, and some videos charging that uh, Walker was anything but the family man who believed in family values, that in fact Walker uh, has been brutally violent against his mom, who he threatened to kill in at least one instance, holding a gun to her head. But while the story has rocked the Walker campaign over the last couple of days after they had hoped and prayed it would never come out. Well, I shouldn't say they prayed because these folks are obviously not particularly religious. They just play that on TV when they're trying to win elections. Yep. It's it's not all that clear that any of this actually matters to today's Republican Party at all. They uh, appear to be at least as hypocritical as Herschel Walker when it comes to abortion and, yes, everything else. I mean, the response to this from some of the leading lights in the Republican Party... So-called. I, I ...are just, uh, you know... I Well, I guess, you know what, I want to say they're remarkable, but they're really not. This is exactly who we have been telling you for I don't know how many years that the Republican Party is they are liars they don't believe they are hypocrites they do not actually believe in anything they claim to believe in they do not actually have family values they do not have religious values none of that matters none of that has ever mattered they are not conservative 
They say that to win elections. In addition to uh, Donald Trump, who we would expect to not care about lies or hypocrisy or abortion, other influential Republicans on Tuesday pledged to support Herschel Walker, nonetheless, even in the wake of this story. They just don't care. Ronna Romney McDaniel, the uh, Republican National Committee chairwoman, said the report, quote, is an attempt to distract from Raphael Warnock's record of failure, resulting in rising costs and out-of-control crime. Herschel Walker will deliver a safe and more prosperous Georgia, and the RNC will continue to invest in the Senate race, she tweeted, because she doesn't care. She never did. Republicans never did. Which is why it has always made me so crazy when I would complain about why are you, you know, to the media, to the corporate media, why are you calling them conservative? They are not conservatives. They're just claiming that. They're pretending. Rick Scott, the head of the Senate GOP's campaign arm, said on Tuesday that the party still supports Walker. No problem there. Herschel has denied the allegations and Republicans stand with him. Never mind the receipts, the literal receipts from the abortion clinic. Never mind the get well cards signed by Walker. Never mind the, uh, the, the bank deposits. He's denied the allegations. We'll stand with him. And Georgians, says Rick Scott, will also stand with him, too. Scott serves as the chair of the National Republican Senate Committee. So he's likely one of the top Republican leaders that have known about this allegation for months and didn't care. The uh, Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, an anti-abortion group, told Axios that they, too, will stand by Walker, saying the candidate, quote, has denied these allegations in the strongest possible terms, and we stand firmly alongside him. Actually, the strongest possible terms would be if, in fact, he filed that defamation defamation suit against the uh, uh, Daily Beast, as he had promised would happen Tuesday morning. Hasn't happened. At least not yet. Maybe it will. The National Right to Life Committee also said in a statement that they, quote, stand behind their endorsement of Herschel Walker, despite the allegations. Now, keep in mind, MSNBC's Chris Hayes sort of put all of this into perspective on Twitter. He noted, quote, I just want to be clear that in the moral cosmology of Herschel Walker and Republicans, the accusation is that he paid to have his child murdered. That is true. That is how Republicans and Herschel Walker pretend to see abortion. Walker, uh, as the Daily Beast noted, has repeatedly likened the procedure of abortion to murder and does not support any exceptions, including for rape, incest, or the life of the mother, which he dismisses as, quote, excuses. Those are just excuses. Walker said at a conservative Christian values roundtable this August, that was oh just about a month ago, he said, uh, quote, to say that it is OK for a woman to kill her baby when God said thou shall not kill. I just I can't square it. I can't get around it, said Walker. But as Chris Hayes added, quote, I would say a lot of the public reaction shows you that a lot of them don't actually believe abortion is murder. Correct. They don't. Or at least they're happy to 
make excuses for it, as Herschel Walker was claiming when other people wanted to take advantage of those uh, reproductive rights. Former Republican House Speaker Newt Gingrich was on Fox News uh, last night. He said this. I talked to Herschel about this this morning, and I've known Herschel a good while. Uh, I think he's a remarkable person. I think he's the most important Senate candidate in the country because he'll do more to change the Senate just by the sheer presence, by his confidence, by his deep commitment to Christ, by the degree to which he is. You know, he's been through a long, tough period. He had a lot of concussions coming out of football. He suffered PTSD. Oh, well, then no problem there. He, he suffered PTSD. He played football. He believes in Christ, so it's all okay. And, and, and he has, he's a deeply felt Christian. I mean, his opponent is a literal Christian pastor. I'm a minister, I know, who actually uh, 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 leads uh, Martin Luther King's uh, church, church down in Georgia. He believes in Christ. Won't he do enough to change the Senate with his presence there? No, because what... Newt Gingrich is talking about is he will change the Senate with his presence there because uh, if Herschel Walker me, uh, wins, it may mean that Republicans get back their power, get back their majority. It really is all about power. It's amazing. I mean, Gingrich, prior to this uh, week, at least, would have described abortion uh, or described, uh, you know, Herschel Walker as a murderer for what uh, he allegedly did. But as long as it helps them politically, and that is what the abortion issue for folks like Gingrich and, of course, Donald Trump, but also uh, uh, Rick Scott, Ronna Romney McDaniel and all the rest. It has always only been about politics. They don't care about saving the children. Even the abortion, the supposed abortion groups apparently don't care. They don't actually care. They don't actually think that it is murder. They think that opposing abortion will get them votes, will get them the votes that they need. As far right winger Dana Lesh uh, on her dumb podcast pretty much said outright yesterday. So does this change anything? I, I mean, do you want my opinion? You're listening. Not a damn thing. Mm-hmm. How many times have I said four very important words? These four words. Winning is a virtue. Mm-hmm. What I'm about to say is in no means a contradiction or a compromise of a principle. No, not at all. And please keep in mind that I am concerned about one thing and one thing only at this point. Mm-hmm. So I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. Right. I want control of the Senate. Right. If the Daily Beast story is true, you're telling me Walker used his money to reportedly pay some skank for an abortion and Warnock wants to use all of our monies to pay a whole bunch of skanks for abortions. Hmm. And yes, when they're used predominantly over 99% of birth control and it's my taxpayer dollars, you have invited me up in your business and I will use whatever descript I would like to. <laughs> Thank you. So it doesn't change anything for me. Right. I don't know if he did it or not. I don't even care. Right. 
It doesn't change anything for her. She was a hypocrite and a liar before. She's a hypocrite and a liar now. And by the way, that skank she's talking about, that was Herschel Walker's former wife. Uh, does she get credit for honesty, at least, there? Well, no. Because she had no choice other than to make this, essentially, make this admission. It doesn't change anything for her because she was a liar then, she's a liar now, she's a hypocrite then, she's a hypocrite now. And yes, she does not even care if it's true. She didn't care before, she doesn't care now. That is your Republican Party today. No family values, no religious values, no conservative values, no personal responsibility, no interest in anything but getting and holding power at any cost, even apparently at the cost of what they think is murder. And I suspect Dana Lesh is uh, sharing the very same thoughts as the bulk of the Republican Party today. They don't care. So... We will see if it has any effect on the polling in Georgia or not. Maybe it will. Maybe I'm not giving Republicans enough credit. We'll see if the numbers change. Right now it is neck and neck in the state of Georgia between Herschel Walker and uh, Raphael Warnock. We'll see if anything changes. But every vote is going to matter in the great state of Georgia in about, let's see, just over a month's time. Which, by the way, uh, you know, that is why it is so easy for Republicans to simply do whatever they feel is necessary to keep voters from being able to vote. Voters who are unlikely to vote for them. If they have to stop them from voting, they will, because the only thing that matters is winning. Well, that matter came up again at the Supreme Court on Tuesday, and that story is next on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Let me tell you something, children. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light mine, I'm gonna let it shine, yeah. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. I let it shine, let it shine to show my love. Yeah, welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Beginning with at least 2013's Shelby County versus Holder case, the U.S. Supreme Court has been arguably piece by piece working to dismantle the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act aimed at eliminating race discrimination in voting. On Tuesday at the high court during oral arguments over yet another right wing challenge to the Voting Rights Act, Justice Elena Kagan described the law as, quote, one of the great achievements of American democracy to achieve equal political opportunity regardless of race. 
Well, perhaps it's no wonder then that the right-wingers who have long controlled the court are seeking to strike it down any way that they can. The Shelby County case gutted the law's critical Section 5, which mandates that jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination in elections must receive federal approval before changing voting laws. Writing for the court majority at the time that Section 5 was gutted, Chief Justice John Roberts explained that essentially pre-clearance of laws is no longer needed in the United States given the many great strides that minority voters have accomplished since the law was enacted, basically arguing that racial discrimination was no longer a problem in American elections. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously argued in her dissent at the time regarding the gutting of Section 5's preclearance requirement, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. The response from the court's Republican appointees was that, well, doing away with Section 5 was no big deal because, after all, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act also allowed lawsuits to challenge racial discrimination in voting, even if it was only after racial discriminatory laws were enacted. Earlier this year, in response to Alabama's Republican state legislature's redistricting of congressional seats following the 2020 census, a lawsuit was filed under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. It charged that while more than a quarter of the state's population is African-American, only one of seven districts in the state, congressional districts, allowed minority voters to have a realistic chance of electing the candidate of their choice. Black voters, the suit argued, were concentrated in just one district in the state to allow them to have a supermajority there, while otherwise spreading out black voters over the state's remaining six districts so that their voting power would be diluted. It's a practice known as packing and cracking, packing minority voters into one district while cracking the rest of them among all the other districts in order to dilute their voting power. In February, a three-judge panel on a U.S. appeals court featuring two judges appointed by Donald Trump unanimously found that, yes, Alabama had, in fact, violated Section 2 of the voting rights with their packing and cracking, and the court ordered that a second majority black district be drawn up in time for this year's critical midterm elections. That was good news. Again, the court, with two Trump judges determined unanimously that the state had violated the law and ordered new maps before this year's elections. But Alabama appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, while not deciding one way or another on the merits of the case, effectively decided in favor of Alabama with a 5-4 to four vote on the so-called shadow docket before actually hearing arguments for or against they decided uh, five to four to block the lower court's order to add another black majority district until the Supreme Court could actually hear the case themselves. That means, of course, that there will be only one such district in November in which Alabama's black voters have a realistic chance of selecting their preferred candidate. A similar ruling to create an additional black majority uh, congressional district in Louisiana was also put on hold. 
The Alabama case, Merrill versus Milligan, was heard by the Republicans' packed and stolen U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday, where the court's newest justice, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, nominated by Joe Biden, was present for her second day of oral arguments at the court. The day prior, she had made quite a splash by taking on a Republican challenge to the authority of the EPA to regulate the waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act. And on Tuesday, she rather brilliantly turned the favored tactic of her right-wing peers on its head, advancing a so-called originalist argument to support voting protections for racial minorities. Originalism is one of the recently favored legal constructs of right-wingers, perhaps made most famous by the late Justice Antonin Scalia, arguing that the Constitution and the laws created under it must be judged by discerning the original intent of the framers of the Constitution who wrote it. In the case, on Tuesday, Alabama argues for a race-neutral approach to redistricting, a map-making process that would eviscerate what protections remain in the Voting Rights Act to ensure that the state doesn't draw districts in a way that dilutes minority communities' votes. But the Voting Rights Act was written to enforce the Constitution's 14th and 15th Amendments adopted after the Civil War, granting African-American voters the right to vote. For example, the 15th Amendment is just two sentences long. Section 1, the right of citizens of the U.S. to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section 2 the of the uh, 15th of the uh, Uh, 15th Amendment says the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Well, the Congress did exactly that. It did enforce that article by appropriate legislation, the Voting Rights Act, even if it took them about 100 years to actually pass that law after the adoption of those constitutional amendments. But the Voting Rights Act of 1965 has been uh, dismantled by the high court, or at least they're trying to, in recent years. And Justice Jackson, in her appeal to originalism, delved into the intent of the framers of those post-Civil War amendments to argue that their intent at the time was anything but race neutral. Um, I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account, that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem because I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, at what the framers and the founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race-conscious way that they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against, the freedmen, um, in, during the Reconstruction period, uh, were actually uh, 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 brought equal to everyone else in the society. So I looked at the uh, report that was submitted by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, which drafted the 14th Amendment. Um, And that report says that the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. The legislator who introduced that amendment 
said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not, um, that's not a race-neutral or race-blind idea in terms of the remedy. And, and even more than that, um, I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders uh, believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required, right? They drafted the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which specifically stated that citizens would have the same civil rights as enjoyed by white citizens. That's the point of that act, to make sure that the other citizens, the black citizens, would have the same as the white citizens. So they recognized that there was unequal treatment, that people based on their race were being treated uh, unequally. And importantly, when there was a concern that the Civil Rights Act wouldn't have a constitutional foundation, that's when the 14th Amendment came into play. It was drafted to give a foundational, uh, a, a constitutional foundation for a piece of legislation that was designed to make people who had less opportunity and less rights equal to white citizens. So with that as the framing in the background, I'm trying to understand your position that Section 2, which by its plain text is doing that same thing, is saying you need to identify people in this community who have less opportunity and less ability to participate and ensure that that's remedied, right? It's a race-conscious effort, as you have indicated. I'm trying to understand why that violates the 14th Amendment, given the history uh, and, and background of the 14th Amendment. Wow. So the founders uh, were not trying to be race-neutral, but rather race-conscious when they created these amendments. Case closed, it seems to me, at least if we go by the Republicans' own uh, notion of originalism when it comes to judging these things. They, of course, may uh, feel somewhat different. Uh, perhaps the corrupted right-wingers on the court may feel otherwise. The court is unlikely to issue a ruling in this case in any event until next year. But joining us now is... Longtime redistricting and gerrymandering expert Dan Vicuña, the National Redistricting Manager at Common Cause, who we spoke to last February after the Supreme Court placed the lower court's unanimous ruling on hold that would have, arguably should have, created a second minority voting district in Alabama in time for this year's elections. Uh, Dan Vicuña, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me. That seems to me to be uh, uh, one hell of an argument uh, that uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson was making there. Even the uh, that even the right wing so-called originalists on the court are going to have a hell of a time opposing. Were they able to do so in court on Tuesday? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. Because, you know, what Alabama is seeking is a fairly radical change to the, the law and current Supreme Court jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the court, uh, you know, in a case uh, added in the 80s, right after Section 2 was amended to be more voter-friendly, uh, created a framework for what redistricting under the Voting Rights Act should look like. You know, the Jingles factors, it's called, a case at Thornburg v. Jingles, where they basically essentially decided that um, a, a jurisdiction, a state, would have to draw uh, a, a district in which uh, people of color could elect their candidate of choice. Mm -hmm. um, if that community of color was concentrated enough, 
um, and, and basically you could draw sort of a reasonable kind of kind of looking district, right? It's sort of there, you know, they, they could make up a majority of the voters in a district mm-hmm. that was sort of re- reasonably configured. You know, some other requirements are involved as well, but that's the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Alabama is seeking uh, is a huge change to that. It's it basically essentially asking the court to allow a, a race-neutral drawing of districts, and, and as long as you are race-neutral, it doesn't really matter if a community of color, you've allowed them to elect their candidate of choice. Uh, that's all a state has to do. So basically they're saying you know, maybe uh, the black community in Alabama could have no districts in which they elect their candidate of choice unless it was drawn in a so-called race-neutral way. So, you know, it's a huge change, and so I think Justice Jackson was rightfully uh, pushing back in a forceful manner on what would be a, a significant change in blow to voting rights if Alabama prevailed. Isn't that argument that the Alabama is making just ridiculous on its face for a number of reasons? Among them, clearly, the way they drew this map uh, was not race neutral. I mean, it was meant to pack, uh, you know, the, the bulk of the state's uh, uh, black voters into one single district. A, that's one question. And B, how do you, you know, enforce a law that is meant to assure a lack of racial discrimination in voting without taking race into account? I mean, am, am I getting this? It, it just doesn't seem to make sense on its face. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty clear act of racial discrimination, you know, at the front end. It was not, in fact, you know, they were claiming to support a race-neutral view of redistricting the law, but they clearly didn't engage in redistricting in a race-neutral way. Yet, as you mentioned at your opening, you know, African-Americans make up about a quarter of the population, but only get uh, you know, a majority of the population in one of seven congressional districts. Mm-hmm. It's clear as the, the district court found, the three-judge district court found, including two Trump appointees, that... Um, a second district uh, could be drawn in which the black community of, in Alabama could elect their candidate of choice. And, um, you know, I, I think there's there's a reason why Alabama really provided no roadmap for ensuring equal opportunity uh, for uh, people of color in this country under their view of the Voting Rights Act, is because there there is no way to take a, to, to really blind uh, demographers of a state, uh, you know, to sort of have one hand tied behind your back, find your... Pick your metaphor, uh, but basically right. make it essentially impossible to ensure um, equal opportunity in voting process for uh, for people of color in the states, especially in states that have a um, a long history of discrimination, mm-hmm. um, like uh, like Alabama does. Um, you've got uh, you know it, it just it creates a huge problem and really continues the the chipping away of of the Voting Rights Act and power. Yeah, and I want to talk about what this uh, could mean for the Voting Rights Act, but uh, just for a moment to stick on Alabama, if if the court decides against Alabama somehow, the Republican state legislature there still will have ended up with an essentially stolen congressional seat for the next two years because... The Supreme Court put the uh, lower court's no uncertain terms finding on on hold for 2022, right? So uh, they, they sort of win one round of this no matter what? Yeah, you know, the Supreme Court has very recently expanded on a doctrine uh, that uh, was really meant to be fairly limited, right? An idea that you shouldn't decide election law cases too close to an election occurring because it may be too disruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've now used it in a few situations, including Alabama, where there was, in fact, plenty of time yeah. uh, to fix districts, to, to ensure that they were aligned 
with our with our constitution that they were lawful mm-hmm. uh there could have been plenty of time to ensure you know the adding of a a majority black or at least a black opportunity district a second one in alabama uh, and there would have been plenty of time to hold an election and ensure constitutional rights of all the citizens of the state but um, you know the supreme court is invoking this doctrine to uh as an excuse i think to uh, to allow some bad behavior to go on and yeah they get a they get a free free uh, illegal map for a cycle. Yeah, and that's the uh, so-called Purcell principle uh, that well, one of many do- new doctrines that they're sort of making up uh, of late in recent years to essentially get what they want. But isn't this the sort of thing? So now, no matter how this is decided, uh, the the state Republicans are going to win one essentially in 2022. But isn't that the sort of thing that would have been avoided had Section Five? Preclearance requirements not previously been gutted by the uh, Supreme Court in in 2013 in the Shelby case. In other words, uh, when they redrew redrew these districts, they would have had to get the approval of the federal government before they could be enacted. Right? Yeah, I mean, one of the most effective civil rights, human rights laws, okay. I think, arguably ever drawn up and passed by a legislature anywhere on planet Earth was. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and its preclearance regime, as you indicated. Uh, the way it functioned before uh, was that uh, jurisdictions that had a, a history of discrimination, whenever they wanted to make a change to their election laws, and that could be expansive, you know, all sorts of things, moving polling places, how you, uh, you sort of dates and times of elections, those sorts of things. And it also included um, the redrawing of districts after every census. Uh, before that was going to be um, allowed to be implemented, uh, that change, you had to go um, either to the Department of Justice to get it pre-cleared, uh, or th- these jurisdictions have the choice of going to uh, district court. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, they tended to go to the Department of Justice for pre-clearance, and if everything looked kosher, then they'd get approved and that voting change would be allowed. However, um, in the 2013 Shelby County Beholder case, the Supreme Court um, gutted the underlying um, equation used to determine um, whether jurisdiction should be held responsible to, mm-hmm. for its past behavior by um, being, you know, having to pre-clear its voting changes. Um, essentially, gutting Section Five, which created the entire regime. So that mm-hmm. means that now jurisdictions with a long history of discrimination can enact a change in voting, a huge, significant change in voting, including drawing new maps. And the only recourse uh, folks have to enforce civil rights is to sue after the fact. A much more uh, an arduous process, uh, time-consuming, expensive process um, that doesn't always, uh, you know, succeed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a huge, a huge blow to voting rights when preclearance was struck down. And it seems to me that this case, uh, really, no matter how it's uh, decided at this point, it sort of seems like this Alabama case sort of proves that the court was wrong in in the Shelby case because, uh, I mean, you know, here the voters don't have a a way to uh, have a remedy before it is too late. If the court rules in favor of Alabama, Dan Vicuña, what does that mean then for the similar Louisiana case I mentioned where lower court, uh, as I understand it, also ruled that the state needed to add another majority-minority district does that mean that Louisiana voters are out of luck as well? You know, it depends on how expansive an opinion is, right, mm-hmm. that the court hands down. I mean, it will be hugely problematic for Louisiana and any jurisdiction whose voters of color are um, trying to enforce their civil rights, protect their own civil rights in voting. If they, if the court adopts the Alabama position that basically 
the Voting Rights Act is entirely race neutral, and you cannot use race uh, to even look at or try to improve um, equal opportunity for people of color. Yeah, it will be hugely problematic for Louisiana. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a risk of going that far, maybe not quite as far. I, you know, Justice Alito alluded to, uh, uh, you know, a slightly less radical but still hugely problematic approach, adding a new tier to the uh, requirement of drawing majority black, uh, majority minority districts, um, something along the lines of, you know, would a would a race neutral observer have drawn this district? Just sort of a new, uh, you know, an additional requirement to get over uh, the hurdle of proving discrimination. So it really depends on the, how expansive an opinion is. Additional requirements, uh, you know, for uh, for these uh, justices who claim to be conservatives, they don't want to shake the boat, but they keep sort of adding all of these new rules. Dan, uh, AP reports. That uh, the outcome appears in this case appears to rest with Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, brother. Their questions suggested they may be open to a more narrow win for Alabama than the broadest outcome the state is asking for. But even uh, but that even uh, might allow the gutting of uh, such districts around the country would allow the dismantling of existing districts where racial minorities make up more than half the voters. So even existing districts, depending on how the court decides here, could uh, could be dismantled. How many districts and, and congressional seats around the country are, are potentially at stake here now? Um, so the, the, the whole number, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but yeah, uh-huh. I mean, you know, many states have you know, at least majority minority districts, they have districts where, you know, there's between kind of 40 and 49 percent people of color, and that's enough to allow that community to elect their candidate of choice. So, yeah, I mean, if the court comes down with a ruling that makes it much more difficult uh, to draw majority minority districts or minority opportunity districts, you could see a challenging of existing districts kind of opening up the floodgates to lawsuits that will make it harder for people of color to um, elect our preferred candidate. So, um, yeah, we'll just have to see where it goes. Yeah, that sounds bad. Uh, would, would, by the way, would state legislatures be able to act on on something like that uh, before 2024? Do they have to, you know, wait until the next redistricting after the 2030 census uh, at this rate to to take that sort of action to dismantle an existing district? You know, there's a norm to in which you sort of redraw districts after the census and leave it alone for a decade, but um, it's not necessarily a requirement in every state. So I think there's, there's a possibility in states with the most cynical state legislators mm. um, might decide to go back to the drawing board and see if they can squeeze out um, one more district uh, for Republicans, one more district uh, in which uh, the white community locally elects their candidate of choice, depriving uh, a community of color from electing their candidate of choice. Um, it certainly raises the, you know that threat. If the court, on the other hand, rules against Alabama somehow, uh, can it order new maps and a new special election, or would this be like a done deal at this point, no matter what, until 2024? I think it's probably a done deal until 2024. I think the likelihood of special elections are probably pretty slim, although I, you know, I, you never know, but I think most likely the court is going to send it back to the three-judge trial court um, ask them to, um, you know, figure it out. Either either send it back to the legislature to make them draw a district with two uh, majority minority uh, black districts, mm-hmm. um, or have appoint a special master to draw districts. 
um, you know, that, that it could go either way on that front. And setting aside what this actually means for the state of Alabama and, and its voters for the moment, if the uh, Supremes uh, find in favor of, of Alabama's argument, essentially, uh, does that... As you see it, uh, Dan Vicuña, uh, actually gut whatever is whatever little is left of the Voting Rights Act and its remaining Section 2, as, as Justice Kagan seemed to be arguing on Tuesday? It runs the risk of making it incredibly difficult for civil rights litigators trying to ensure uh, equal opportunity uh, in voting uh, that the framers of the 14th and 15th Amendment intended uh, make it very difficult for them uh, and very difficult for those communities um, to ensure equal opportunity to participate in the process. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very troubling. Um, you know, the advocates uh, were, uh, in favor of the plaintiffs uh, certainly did a commendable job in front of the court. And you saw Justice Jackson, you know, you, uh, you play the audio of a really forceful historical, legal, logical mm-hmm. argument as to why Alabama's approach is wrong. So uh, we'll just, you know, see how it plays out. And I know it's tea leaf reading and it's always dangerous, but, you know, obviously it's pretty clear where the uh, court's three remaining liberals are against Alabama's argument, but were you able to get any sense from the hearing how the court's right-wing justices are currently positioned in this critical case, or are we all just going to have to sit around and wait for a year? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... Th- the one thing that seems clear is that uh, the conservative justices were not buying the most radical argument Alabama was selling them, which was the idea that um, as long as you draw up districts in a completely race-neutral way, that that's the only requirement for ensuring civil rights um, in the redistricting process. Um, whether they they lean toward a less radical approach, mm-hmm. that still makes it very hard for civil rights plaintiffs um, that uh, that still seems to be possibly on the table, so we'll just have to wait and see. That is uh, disturbing. Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, it it's all come, seems to come down to Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, but even if they narrowly decide in favor of Alabama, that could be a very bad decision for voters in Alabama and, uh, frankly, across the country. Last question, Dan. This, was, uh, this matter was heard on day two of the court's new term. So when is the court expected to issue a ruling? Do we have to wait, in fact, for, what is it, until June or July of next year? Well, you do see the court uh, releasing their most controversial decision that late. You know, at the very end of the term, they obviously can, you know, do whatever they want, and they may work significantly more quickly than that. But uh, the things that are the most contentious, I think, seem, seem, seem to be the most difficult for them to uh, draw to a conclusion. So that's, I think waiting that late is possible, but we, we don't know for sure. Oi, is all I can say. Uh, it's it's going to be a, uh, a, a nail-biter bunch of months. And, and, of course, that's not the only case that we have to worry about from the Supreme Court, but that's a huge one, and there's an even huger one uh, coming up in, I think, just a, a week or two, uh, Moore v. Harper and the so-called independent legislature doctrine, which could be game over for just about all elections uh, in this country. Going to be a rough year. Dan Vicuña, he's the National Redistricting Manager at Common Cause. You can get more information, of course, uh, on all of this at commoncause.org slash redistricting. You can also follow Dan on the Twitters at Dan Vicuña. Oh, brother Dan, really appreciate you joining us once again today on the broadcast, sir. Yeah, happy to do it. Keep well, keep your spirits up. We got we got to keep fighting. Thank you, sir. I need that. Appreciate it. Okay.
Okay, uh, keeping our spirits up, let's take a quick break. <laughs> and we are back with, uh, well, maybe some news that'll keep your spirits up. I don't know. We'll find out, sort of, some, I think, bad news for Donald Trump in court. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Boy, I am really worried about this country. Yes. Maybe that's just me. Welcome back to the uh, Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. But here maybe is some better news. I don't really know. A U.S. appeals court on Wednesday granted the Justice Department's request to expedite, to expedite its appeal of a lower court order by a corrupt Trump-appointed judge named Eileen Cannon. Uh, appointing a special master to review stolen records that the FBI sees from former President Donald Trump's Florida estate in early August. The decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit to fast track the government's appeal represents a setback for Trump, who had opposed the request. Though, in truth, all of this legal wrangling by uh, Team Trump, even on the fast track requested here by the DOJ, is still going to bollocks things up until at least mid-November. Bingo. That's the idea. Last week, the Justice Department had asked the 11th Circuit to address concerns that it has with U.S. District Judge uh, Cannon, uh, Eileen Cannon's ridiculous appointment of senior judge Raymond Deary as a special master tasked with reviewing more than 11,000 records the FBI found inside Mar-a-Lago in order to weed out anything that may be privileged in some fashion under executive privilege, which Trump, as the former president, does not even have the power to invoke. Yes, this is all that ridiculous, and Judge Cannon is all that corrupt. Cannon's order blocks the Justice Department from relying on those records in its ongoing criminal investigation into whether Trump violated the Espionage Act and other federal statutes until Deary's review is complete. At the same time, Trump and Cannon have been trying to slow Deary's review down as long as they possibly can. Even longer than Deary himself has requested for the review, Judge Cannon has said, no, 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 take your time, move it back, not until December do you need to finish this, mid-December. In its filing uh, with the 11th Circuit, the, judge, the Justice Department said this prohibition on them looking at all of the documents is hampering their criminal probe. It needs to be able to examine non-classified records that may have been stored in close proximity to classified ones with the department saying that those non-classified records, quote, may shed light on how the documents were transferred to or stored at the Mar-a-Lago estate, and critically, who may have accessed them. Without dissent, the circuit court rejected Trump's opposition, which, as renowned Harvard Law School professor Lawrence Tribe notes, quote, was as baseless as his trip to the Supreme Court on Tuesday, on another aspect of Cannon's order, in that uh, SCOTUS case, 
Trump filed on Tuesday. He seeks to have the high court allow the special master to review the many classified documents as well that a three-judge panel on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, including two judges appointed by Trump himself, have already removed from Judge Deary's special master review. So now the case will move forward on what is considered to be a fast track, according to the one-page order from the 11th uh, 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 Circuit Court of Appeals. The uh, DOJ's brief is due on or before October 4, then... Uh, the response on November 10 and another brief in response to that on uh, November 17. So even if this is all expedited, it's still going to be going on for quite some time in court beyond the midterm elections. And by the way, as the order notes, it's likely to be a different three judge panel on the 11th Circuit that will be chosen to hear this case, as opposed to the one that has been overturning Judge Cannon in you know no uncertain terms of late, that three-judge panel had two judges that were appointed by Trump on it and one appointed by Obama. So we don't yet know who's going to make up the new panel to hear the DOJ's appeal, but for the record, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals is now packed with six Trump judges out of 11 on that court. So buckle up. Buckle up indeed. we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And to our guest today, Dan Vicuña of Common Cause as well. My thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, want to hear it again, share it with anyone you know, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. We have no paywall there. Thanks to those of you who hit one of those donate buttons right there to help support the work that Desi Doyen and I try to do every day over your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>